Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas... Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on Contact to send me a message. And now, on with the interview. Hello, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. Today, I'm talking to Sandra Allen, author of the book, A Kind of Miraculous Paradise, A True Story About Schizophrenia, published in 2018 by Scribner. Sandra Allen is a nonfiction writer based in the Catskills and former BuzzFeed News Features editor. Their essays and feature stories have been published by BuzzFeed News CNN Opinion, and Pop-Up Magazine. They also founded and ran the online-only literary quarterly, WAG's Review. Their work focuses on the past, present, and future of mental health care in America and on constructs of normalcy, including psychiatric disability and gender. Sandra, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Could you start by telling us about your professional background and how you became interested in mental health care? Sure. I am... Um was a writing student in college, and then I went to graduate school to continue to study creative nonfiction writing, which is a clunky phrase, but, you know, stories that are crafted and also true. So I was always kind of more an English major type um, and uh, had no real interest in anything like mental health or mental illness, you know, uh, until... Uh, I had recently moved to Iowa to start grad school in 2009, and I got a call from my uncle who was living in the desert and called himself a hermit, and he wanted to mail me something that he'd written. He'd written down his autobiography, and he wanted to mail it to me, and he did, and I received this stack of pages, about 60 pages in the mail, typed in all capital letters, pretty misspelled, punctuated with a lot of colons. And it told the story of his life um, from his childhood all the way through to the present. He was in his mid-50s when he sent it to me. So um, on the cover of his story, he wrote that it was a true story about being labeled a psychotic, paranoid schizophrenic. And the story that he told was one written from his point of view as a person who at age 16 had been driven to a mental hospital and tossed in a cell and injected with antipsychotics and um, for the rest of his life put into this category of schizophrenic. So that sent me down a very long meandering path um, where over the years I endeavored to, well, first I, I spoke with Bob about what he wanted and he wanted my help in getting the story out there. And at the time, eight, nine years ago, I was really skeptical I, that I could help him in any way. It was a very unorthodox looking text and I was just a grad student. And But yeah, I, I eventually um, was able to turn his story into this book. Um, and in one font, the book tells his story um, faithfully to the facts that he set down. And in a second font, I try to delve into some questions that I think come up as we encounter Bob's story, like what is schizophrenia or how is his experience fit into a, a bigger portrait of the history and the present of mental health care in America? So it's, it's quite an interesting story. I don't know that I've ever heard anything like it. And, and before we get into the book, I want to understand a little bit more about your relationship with him. I guess prior to receiving this manuscript and also then what that made it like for you to mm-hmm. receive it. Yeah, I detail this a bit in the beginning of the book. So I sort of start my reader off by giving them everything I knew about Bob before he sent me his true story of his life. So I had um, kind of some memories of spending time with him on family vacations in northern Minnesota when I was a kid. 
And that was where my primary interactions with him really before he sent me his life story. And my impressions of him were, I, I think even as a very young child and other people, I think who have individuals in their families that have um, severe mental illness diagnoses will probably identify with this. Even as a young child, I sensed not that he was different per se, but that everybody else treated him different. Um, and I, as a little person had asked about, um, I'd seen him taking medication and I asked my mom about what that was and, and she had said he was crazy. So I had that term like crazy. Um, and I always knew therefore that that was something about him, but I think I also wasn't very satisfied by that. Like I wanted to know why or what had happened or like what the pills had to do with that. So I think even as a young person, I was curious, but we also connected he and I, um, he was a musician. I'm musical. I'm a singer. And, um, and, you know, generally we're creative types, you know, we're artists. And I think that he probably sensed I was someone in the family who was probably going to be more open-minded as he presented the true story of his life. Um, because it's just, you know, kind of how I am. I'm a little weird too. Um, <laughs> but my impressions of him were very removed and we didn't visit him. I never went to his house as a kid. I went there once as an adult myself when I happened to be driving kind of in the area. I went and saw him when I was about 19. So I knew him ever so slightly, but um, he called us some, um, he would leave us messages, he would send us music he'd recorded. Um, but he was a curiosity at the fringes at the very most. I really didn't think very much about him. And I certainly didn't think that I would ever get really involved in being his biographer. And, you know, <laughs> my entire life now really is devoted to continuing to get his story out there because I believe very much in sort of the, the bigger point that I think Bob set out to make. Um, but yeah, my, my journey was really one of ambivalence and ignorance. And then Bob sent me his pages. And, you know, when I finally read them through the first time, my head began to change, you know, and I think that this book is as much the story of his life as it's the story of me grappling with my own prejudice. Um, and I think the prejudice a lot of us are made to have about people who are given a diagnosis like schizophrenia. So then one day you, you get the call and, and the readers should know that a lot of this you, you document in the book and really walk the reader through the background history, and then also the day that you got the call from him expressing a desire for you to read his story and publish it, and the entire journey that you go through in thinking about whether or not you're going to do this and then decide to do it. But I'm wondering, that day that you received the manuscript, or even I'm wondering when you got his call, did you have any idea why he picked you? It's really the most common question I get. Actually, no, these days, the most common question I get is, is he dead? But then the mm. second question I get tends to be like, yeah, why you? Um, and I've, I've always had a sort of not great answer to that question. I mean, I think a very basic point is that I was the writer he knew. You know, I was going to grad school for writing and I'd studied writing as an undergrad. So I think he noticed correctly that I was someone in the family who was being trained up in how to get people to read things, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I, I also think that we probably, you know, we connected when I was younger and I think that probably mattered. Um, I'm not the only relative he mailed this story to. I am the only person he mailed the original to. Um, and that's the kind of fact that I only realized years later. Um, but when I had it originally, you know, because it had been written on a typewriter and I assumed it had been quite a labor for him to write down his entire life story in all capital letters in this form, like I didn't necessarily go, oh, how cool I want to write something from this. And I didn't throw it out. I was somewhere in the middle, you know, I was like, I don't really want to get involved with whatever this is because, you know, it's a family, it's complicated. If you start helping something, someone with something, it's going to make other people worried or upset or whatever. So I was just like living in Iowa by myself and just not really engaging as best as I could. But I had begun to read what he'd written and I was curious, you know, because I, it was really true that the impression I had of this person was so wrong, you know, looking at his life from more of his point of view, really hearing it as a child in Berkeley, California in the 1960s and 70s, as a teenager being, you know, uh, put in that first psychiatric psychiatric hospital, the, the whole narrative of his life, you know, certainly challenged whatever conception I had vaguely had about what his life was or who he was based on as small a thing as a word, like crazy. 
Um, and, and I think that that, that was really the, the beginning of me just continuing to, um, not tell Bob definitively, Hey, I'm going to help you. But I didn't not stop reading his story either. I think I just took a long time to sort of, um, come around and, uh, and to, you know, confidently, um, for example, tell the rest of the family, like, Hey, yeah, this is happening. I'm doing this. Um, and that process took eight years cause it was just hard to do. It was hard on the level of the page. It was hard interpersonally. And it also required me to become really just a lot smarter about all the topics that I think Bob's story activates. Um, and so I spent a lot of years reading and also interviewing really just a- as much as I could um, and trying to make sure I got my own head kind of on straight um, as I endeavored to, uh, you know, make good on what Bob started to finish it, to see it through, get it out there. Did he specifically want you to publish his story or did he, did he not specify that? He wanted it. Yeah. He wanted it out there. He wanted it read. I don't know what his um, understanding of like the publishing industry was. Um, I, and I I initially, you know, whatever, eight, nine years ago, I said to him very plainly, like, Hey, you're not going to be able to mail this thing and have anyone print it up. You know, like that's not where this is. Um, but I also at that point didn't see a path forward in general and was just trying to discourage him from doing this because I just thought, you know, this sounds, you know, like it's going to make people upset and I don't want to get involved. And, and that's where I was, you know, um, but over time, really just his story continued to kind of whittle away at me. And I began to understand that, oh, no, it's really not only is it a cool story that I think people should read, but I think it's really important that those of us who are in the position of privilege of not having been labeled with schizophrenia, for example, begin to really listen to the points of pe- the points of view of people who have been on that side of the psychiatric system as constituted, and that we begin to understand that this is something we are all wrapped up in. Um, and, you know, those kinds of lessons just took a long time for me to kind of understand and to and to really agree with him that there is an important point here in people suspending their judgment and listening to this man's account of his life, because so much of his life was defined by being excluded and defined by others and put down and disregarded and distrusted. You know, a lot of the time people assumed he wasn't trustworthy because of a diagnosis like schizophrenia. And so I was curious, you know, well, how do we make sense of that, you know? And that's hopefully what my book begins to unpack for really readers with all levels of familiarity with these topics. I wrote it for people as ignorant as me and for people who are already very aware of, you know, questions like what mental health care in America is right now. So then tell us about Bob. Bob was a musician. He was a guitarist. Um, His young life was very tumultuous. He um, was coming up in Berkeley in the 60s, as I said. So it was this really, um, I don't know, uh, a a very multi- uh, a a stimulating time and place, to say the least. You know, he was around rock and roll and drugs and the integration of the schools and his parents divorced when he was a, a young teenager And um, it's that moment, really, when he begins his career in the psychiatric system, about age 16. Um, And, you know, it's it's clear as you read his story from his point of view that it's hard to figure out, you know, what was wrong specifically. It seems like a lot was wrong in his life, you know, when he when he first got that diagnosis. Um, And uh, yeah, he was someone who I think um, remained very strong despite uh, a, a lot of hardship, including, you know, kind of the, the dehumanization of being put in cells and injected with stuff and, you know, not really told what was going on or not really uh, hearing it or whatever. Um, and he was, a, he was a funny person. And that was something that pretty much everyone who knew him would return to. And I did eventually interview everyone in, in the family who wanted to talk to me, who wanted to, you know, give their perspective on Bob. And I tracked down everyone in his story and asked them how they remembered stuff and so on. And that was really the, the two things that would come up. He played like Hendrix, like he was a phenomenal guitarist and he was really funny. Um, and he was, especially in his later life, um, cause he was a hermit in the desert for decades um, he was a very um, religious person, a very spiritual person. He was specifically Christian, but he was also very um, self-taught in a variety of kind of religious texts and would read about other faiths at depth. And he was 
very self-taught generally, you know, because he kind of was um, not someone who got along with other people and kind of ended up uh, figuring out how to live on his own. And I think kept himself busy and engaged by reading and watching TV and smoking cigarettes and playing music. Um, but yeah, that was Bob. You know, he was someone who I think um, had experienced a lot of difficult stuff in life, but who still really believed in goodness and sought to, I think in writing down the true story of his life, he sought to do good in the world. He wanted people like him to um, have this story out in the, in the world. Um, Cause I think he observed that there was a big difference between who he was and who most people presumed to him to be. And you mentioned that it was around 16 that he started what you could call his career in mental health care. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how he received the diagnosis, what what led to his being taken in for treatment and assessment, and what it meant, as far as you can tell, what it meant at that time to be diagnosed. Yeah, I am... Um... This is a good question, a good set of questions, and I don't have a great answer. This is one of those matters that the book, the book in a lot of respects, gives my reader the best of what I figured out. And in a lot of a lot of cases, I, I don't say definitively, hey, this side is right or that side is right. Um, and so a question like, why did he get driven to the hospital? Um, you know, I, I give Bob's account, and I also give the uh, answers that my grandfather, who was his, you know, primary caretaker at that point, I, and, and one of the things that's clear is that whereas for Bob, this was this central event, you know, being driven to the hospital the first time, um, for my grandfather, he didn't remember a specific first hospitalization. He didn't have a lot to say, um, in terms of my, you know, my question for years have been, what happened? Why did you take him there? And, and, and one of the things I am trying to do in the course of the book is kind of paint these two men, you know, this father and son who I think had very different personalities and were also of different generations. And I think just kind of culturally quite different. I mean, Bob was coming up in Berkeley and there was weed and acid and, and et cetera, you know, and my grandfather, I think was just of a very different sort of cut. So, um, I also kind of try to let my reader know about these people. And I think that we're all, uh, we can all interpret it how we want. Um, and I think that one of the things that's clear is that, this event to Bob was so significant and it maybe wasn't as significant to those around him. And I think that's a good example of something that we need to think through. Um, you know, the experience of being confined and being, you know, injected with chemicals and so on can be very scary, you know, and, 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 and that's not to say that a caregiver makes the decision to take someone to a hospital lightly. Um, but, you know, in terms of what was going on in Bob's life for specific quote symptoms, et cetera, like I didn't end up, finding a lot of great answers to those questions, which had been ones that had really, you know, been on my mind for years, because from Bob's point of view, there's nothing like that, you know, from his point of view, he's living his life. And then one day, unaccountably, he's taken to the hospital. And I think that it's important, in general, that we figure out how to honor that reality, right? Because supposing my grandfather was just, you know, I don't know, coy, or hadn't remembered these things specifically, suppose there was some big event or whatever. Um, I think it's it's important for us to think through the fact that an individual who might be interpreted by others as being ill, as needing help, as needing intervention, whatever, might not perceive himself to be that way whatsoever. Um, but yeah, with my uncle's specific case, I didn't end up finding some big answer to what it was that led him to, you know, be hospitalized that first time. And I didn't find um, anything about his diagnosis in terms of when it happened or, you know, who gave it. Um, my grandfather, again, didn't have a lot of recollection or wasn't inclined to talk. And um, my uncle didn't include that information. Um, he included that diagnosis on his book's cover, you know, labeled a psychotic paranoid schizophrenic, but he didn't recount, for example, a specific event of being diagnosed. And I think that makes sense to me because often what happens, right, is an individual isn't necessarily, um, you know, given the play by play of what's being perceived by, you know, about him by the staff who are working with him. Right. But it's clear that's the diagnosis he ended up with. In terms of what paranoid schizophrenic meant, definitionally in around 1970, I do go into that in the book. Um, and I, I, I do look at, you know, what that definition was in the first DSM and what it is, uh, you know, and how it's shifted over time. And I try to give my reader a sense of, here's what's held by the, 
you know, profession of psychiatry about this diagnosis. Here, here's what was held in 1970, and, and here's how it's shifted over time, and here's the belief about this diagnosis and what it means. And I also present, you know, other points of view on that diagnosis because it's true that Bob was one of many people who've been given a diagnosis like schizophrenia who disagree and who are seeking to speak out against, you know, that 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 label to use Bob's word. So I was trying to both give my reader a sense of, you know, here's what this professional um, body feels about this. And here's some of the other points of view that also exist. Um, and it, it felt like part of my making good on, prompt, on Bob's sort of, pro, you know, task of getting the story out there is showing people how his text fits in to these other conversations and these histories and so on. So there's ways in which his hospitalization was pretty typical for someone, you know, with that diagnosis of that era and, in terms of the response, and, and I also go into the history of, for example, deinstitutionalization, which was the movement away from hospitals in this country through the last half of the 20th century, and the rise of pharmaceuticals like Thorazine, um, antipsychotics. So I, I try to you know, give my reader some background because I, I wanted them to be able to just hear his story, um, but not be bothered by questions like, well, what is that? Or what does that word mean? Or you know, that kind of thing. And the thing is that I think it could be said that the book is not just a story of a man named Bob who was diagnosed with schizophrenia and who worked his way through the mental health care system. It, it seems to me it's also the story of a family with a person with schizophrenia. Yeah. And what I find as compelling about that as I do his individual story is the resistance that you seem to be encountering when you're trying to find out certain things about Bob. So when you say that you can't, for instance, that you couldn't, for instance, get any details about that first time that he was taken to the hospital, the account of which, by the way, is pretty heart wrenching. But when you say, you know, that you couldn't get that many details, I wonder, I wonder what you make of that, um, how, how you make sense of that. And if you think that's something that a lot of families in, encounter, and if you think that it, it, it signals that there's some kind of taboo. Um, sure. I mean, I, 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 I faced the fact that when I asked his dad and his stepmom and his mom, for example, three adults who cared for him arguably more than anyone else in the world and, you know, were really involved in decisions about his care back when, when I asked them, you know, about stuff about his hospitalizations and his diagnosis and so on and his life generally, they gave me radically different opinions. Um, and, and they had very different opinions about, for example, the fact of me writing the book, you know, because I think mm -hmm. that for sure, some people view conversation about psychiatric diagnosis, psychiatric care as itself, yeah, out of line or embarrassing or shameful, etc. Um, I'm, I'm obviously not very much in agreement about that. Um, and Bob wasn't either. And I think that he wasn't someone who got much of a choice, right? Like, either he was going to speak out about what happened to him, or he was not going to talk at all. And I think for a lot of decades, he didn't talk very much at all to people about this stuff. But I think he was, eventually, he decided it was important that his true story of his life be out there. Um, because I think he noticed that there was such a, um, a split between how he perceived himself and then how he had been written by others through the course of his life. But yeah, I faced the fact that, you know, even within the, the small unit of his, him and his parents, there were these huge differences in how people felt about really central questions. Um, and so I try in the text to just give my reader a sense of these differences. Um, what were the I, differences? What do they disagree about? Or what were the arguments for and against publishing this? Well, I, I, I never get too specific in part because I, I try to, I mean, I've, I've given my reader what I've given in the book itself, but I mean, in general, you know, I think there are some factions of the family who feel that it, yeah, it's impolite to talk about stuff like this. And there's other people who I think really were eager for Bob to be kind of witnessed in this broad sense. But also, for example, there are people in the family who feel very strongly that schizophrenia is a biological illness and Bob had it and medication is what fixes it or helps it. And there's people in the family who dis disagree with the whole framework, you know, and are embarrassed <coughs> if I'm going to talk about Bob and crazy in the same sentence, you know. And so those were sort of the 
that's what mm. I was working with when I yeah. then had to, as the journalist, as the biographer, as the whatever I am, try to figure out how to get all these real people in this story comfortable with the idea of me going forward with it. Um, and that's why, as I discuss at the top of the book, you know, there's um, pseudonyms, like there's definitely the, there was a lot of just on my part, kind of politicking to figure out, well, how do I reduce the chance that this text hurts real people in the world? My goal is for Bob's story to be heard, but I'm not interested in just hurting my grandmother, you know, and that was one of those challenges that this project, you know, gave me that that mm -hmm. really took years to, to, to work through. And so, and everyone's feelings are fluid, right? And everyone's shifted over time. And um, the book being out in the world has changed it some and in other senses, it hasn't. And um, I think that ultimately, this book just represents in many senses, my very best try. Um, and it probably isn't perfect, you know, in terms of how it how it renders anything. But um, my goal was definitely to show this situation for its complexity for, you know, for its nuance, as you say, I mean, I would agree that I think in any given family, not only are there going to be members who've interacted with the mental health care system broadly constituted, because, you know, at this point in our society, it's so unlikely that a family has nobody in it, you know, who's it, it's just right. a, it's common. It's a common part of, of our lives. Um, and I also think that, yes, it's often shrouded in sort of silence. And I think that that can give the impression that it's rare. Um, and I'm not even talking about, you know, folks with a diagnosis like schizophrenia. I think that a lot of us are living and figuring out, you know, how do I take care of my head? Um, and I think that mm -hmm. no one's really exempt from that activity, as far as I can tell. So I, I, I definitely became interested in trying to figure out how do I create a situation in the story where people can appreciate the fact that these are all individuals with a great deal of knowledge and experience that informs the way they perceive the reality of this. And they're all different, you know, and that difference, the fact of difference is I think one of the things that I'm showing in the course of this story. Um, and I'm, I'm less interested in, a, oh, is this side right? Or is that side right? Because I think that you know, that polarization, it, it doesn't help people like my uncle Bob, it doesn't help people like his parents who want to get him help. Um, I think what would help is if we were able to have honest conversations about what's known scientifically, if we were to have honest conversations about what money influences what's known. Um, and I think how do we figure out how to incorporate the voices of those who are diagnosed with something like schizophrenia into these conversations, broadly speaking, because at the end of the day, there's a lot of activity right now in our in our culture and worldwide movements of people who've been psychiatrically diagnosed, who've been labeled with mental illnesses, who may or may not agree with those labels, but who are seeking to have a seat at that proverbial table in creating system, creating, you know, humane responses um, for when an individual has a really bad day. Um, and I think that's the kind of thing that we should all be, we should all be, we should all care about that more than we do. Mm. I think right now we have a perpetuation of a system that implies a big difference between Bob and me. And I don't know if that's fair because the truth is at the end of the day, I could become psychotic this afternoon. That's the nature of this. You know, anyone right. could become psychotic really. And, and I think as long as that's what's scientifically true, I think we should all be more interested in questions of what happens to those of us who are most vulnerable in the system as constituted. So individuals like my uncle have got, I mean, I think the, the fact that Bob had struggled to stay in consensus reality isn't very disputed, even in his own account. And that's one of the things that I was trying to bring to the fore. You know, he, his, his argument in his, his text, and then therefore my book's argument is very nuanced. He's not saying, oh, I'm anti-psychiatry, let's throw it all out. He's not saying, I, you know, I don't need help. But he is highlighting aspects of the treatment, the care he received, that was itself damaging. Um, and I think it's important that we figure out how to listen to a critique from someone who's actually lived through the psychiatric system and we listen to the nuance of the critique as opposed to just writing off the points of view of, quote, all schizophrenics or something. Mm -hmm. I had a lady at an event the other day who asked a question and her question was basically like, well, all schizophrenics are liars. So how could your book, you know, tell Bob's story? And, and yeah, and I think that and she and she was clearly someone who had an individual in her own family with mental illness. Her question mm -hmm. alluded to that. And so. 
that kind of attitude, you know, all schizophrenics are liars. I think that's the kind of thing that I'm really seeking to unseat in, in the course of this book, um, because I think that it's too easy right now for us to make assumptions about who people are based on a diagnosis like that. And if that's what that diagnosis is effectively, just a cause for the rest of us to judge, <laughs> is that useful? Is that helpful? Is that helping someone like my uncle at 16 who's struggling in all, in all these ways, socially and in his home and so on? Um, and what else could our society have provided for him um, through the course of his life? And did the solutions that we had, did they help or did they hurt? And those kinds of very basic questions that I think it's easy to bury your head in the sand and like not care. And I definitely was that way. And I walked past people who were homeless and talking to themselves and tried hard to ignore them. And I think we're sort of trained up in our society to do that. Um, and I think that Bob and his story definitely forced me out of my own ignorant bubble a little bit and got me really, you know, interested in, in raising the volume on these conversations. Because yeah, as you say, there's, there is stigma, there is silencing that can exist. Um, but I think it's important that as we have this conversation more loudly, we figure out how to include those voices that are traditionally marginalized and not only listen to family of those diagnosed, not only listen to professionals, though those are very important points of view as well. Um, and my book is, is one that kind of seeks to do the impossible, which is honor a lot of kind of fundamentally incompatible points of view. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking about our listeners who might have someone in their own family with schizophrenia or who may have schizophrenia themselves or, or experiences that were they to go to a psychiatrist or psychologist would be labeled a schizophrenia. And I'm, I'm wondering what you hope this story can teach them about this kind of experience that they may not already know or what, what myths you hope it might debunk. Well, I think, you know, there's an adage, I think, I'm going to, I'm just going to steal it for my own purposes. But if you've met one person with schizophrenia, you've met one person with schizophrenia. Right. Um, and I think that's a central point um, that, that this is Bob's story and Bob's family's story and mine, you know, and yes, it's about a lot of other people who are caught up in the same system or who've maybe been given this diagnosis or one like it. Um, and I talked to a lot of people through my years, you know, who had perspective to lend on, on these matters, you know, cause I knew I was ignorant as I began. Um, and I, I wrote this book for people who were ignorant, as I said, but I also really wrote it for people who've been diagnosed, people who have loved ones who've been diagnosed because something else I observed when I really went looking, when I went to the library and tried to read up on schizophrenia that there wasn't a lot of great storytelling that had happened in this space, especially to a general audience, especially literature, especially the kinds of books that we can open up and start at page one and get to the end and feel transformed and feel like we've encountered art or we've been seen or we've seen someone we love. And, you know, I wanted to give that kind of um, experience to people because something I, I noticed was that there is such um, uh, bigotry reigns with regards to schizophrenia right now, you know, in the popular media, the news or in movies or TV or whatever, it is okay, apparently still to just um, hang your whole horror plot on a scary, mentally ill person. It's okay right. to highlight some vicious crime committed by someone with mental health struggles. Mm. You know, we, I think that kind of um, posture is um, really familiar. And it's reprehensible. It's the kind of thing that, you know, it's not going to age well, hopefully, right? Um, and I think that it also, it's not, it's not in step with reality. Like the reality is individuals given a severe mental illness diagnosis are not likelier to commit violent crimes. They are much likelier to be the victim of violent crimes. Right. And the only way that that first step changes is if you look at suicide. Yeah, individuals with severe mental illness diagnosis are likelier to kill or harm themselves. So I think that what we have is um, the more powerful group, i.e. those who haven't been labeled schizophrenic, control the media, we control the news, we control the movies. And what do we say? We say, oh, be scared of the schizophrenic. And I think that really misunderstands the power structure that exists, which is one where people like my uncle are often 
really uh, stripped of civil rights are given a lot less in terms of the opportunities that others might get. You know, uh, discrimination against someone with mental illness in terms of housing is legal, in terms of jobs is legal. So these kinds of things, I think, really don't fit with the popular perception of this kind of boogeyman that I think we've allowed to perpetuate, even as other, um, I don't know, other uh, stereotypes or caricatures of that sort have become verboten socially. It seems like it's still fair game to pick on a crazy person. Um, and I think that that, you know, that's the kind of thing that I, of course, didn't think very much about at all before Bob started waking me up, so to speak. Um, but, you know, I see an opportunity there to tell a better story and one that is real and one that will hopefully and has spoken to people who have lived lives that resemble this in some way. Um, and I've heard from parents, I've heard from siblings, I've heard from adult children, I've heard from people who've been diagnosed, I've heard from professionals, I've heard from psychiatrists who've written me really tremendous responses where they acknowledge that this book helped them understand their patients with schizophrenia in a new and more complicated light. Um, and so that, you know, that's really the goal, right, is to not only, um, have these various parties reflected in this text, but to give kind of everyone an opportunity con to continue to learn. Because I think that one thing that can happen is if the only people you've ever spoken with about this are people who only see it your way, you know, you're limiting yourself. And I think that this text challenges people on all sides, including those who figure this has nothing to do with them. It challenges us all to try to get on more of the same page, or to at least see more of the reality as I think it exists. So I know that you have selected an excerpt to share with us, and I'm wondering if you could go ahead and read it to us and then tell us what that excerpt means to you. Sure. Uh, you said you said read a favorite passage, so I'm <laughs> I picked out a passage that um, comes from pretty late in Bob's story. There's a there's a hospital he goes to initially that's pretty tough for him. And then there's a hospital he goes to a bunch of times later on that, um, and as I described in the story, his father was able to afford this care. And, and, and that's one of the things I'm really looking at is sort of like what care that he received was positive, you know, kind of in his estimation and what did help, et cetera. Um, and so this comes um, pretty far into his story in mind as he's at that second hospital, which he calls La Casa Villa. Oh, and, and I'll say one more thing. So sometimes in my story, um, my, my cover of Bob's story, I quote him faithfully. And when I do mm -hmm. so, I, when I do so live, I tend to do so in all capital letters. Like I'll, I'll throw up a finger to, to show that I'm reading in all capital letters. So I, there's one phrase in here that's written in all caps. I'll try to sort of do it with my voice, but you know, anyway, it's more interesting on the page. The book is written in two fonts. So there's uh, the reader sort of learns to read it as we go. I see. I see. One day on the open unit, he was sitting strumming his 12 string when a guy walked by and complimented his song. I'm working on a song, the guy said. Bob said, great. The guy went and got his guitar and together they sat on the patio. The song the guy played was called The Gambler. That was the coolest thing I've ever heard, Bob said. The guy explained he drove around in a van and his name was Kenny Rogers. They shook hands. Unfortunately, Kenny wasn't on the same ward or in Bob's same therapy group but they still managed to hang out and jam a few times. Bob asked Kenny once why he was at the hospital, and all he said was, I feel rotten. Bob met Kenny's wife and daughter when they came to visit. Then right before Kenny was released, he played a concert for everybody in the day room and even asked if Bob wanted to play bass on one number. Playing with Kenny Rogers, Bob found, was funner than hell. Bob was grinning big, and one patient burst into tears. She was so moved by their song. Bob later found out that Kenny had asked his doctor whether Bob could come with him on tour, but he'd said no. Kenny got out and Bob never saw him again. So tell us about that excerpt. Well, I think it's a, for me, it's a really delightful passage because he's at the hospital and he's jamming with Kenny Rogers. And it's, the, it's an example of a thing where I worked to fact check everything in Bob's story. I worked to prove or disprove it. And, and um, I, tried, I tried reaching um, Kenny Rogers and I, I tried various publicist routes and never got anyone to respond to my emails about whether Mr. Rogers was in a hospital in the East Bay in the 1970s. But um, I think it's an example of like, a passage that therefore challenges us in terms of our sense of like nonfiction or of like whether Bob is reliable. 
And I think I love it because for me, it's equally possible that that's real, <laughs> that this rock star was in this hotel, this hospital at this time, and that he and my uncle jammed. Like, it feels entirely possible that that happened. It also feels entirely possible that it didn't. And I think there's a lot in Bob's story that is that way. And as I was writing it, and as I was fact-checking it and building that element into the text as well, you know, I was constantly surprised by what would end up being, quote, true. And I think that one of the things about Bob's story that, you know, I return to again and again, really, is that it's true to him. It's true to him. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that it's important for us to just really try to honor that reality, such as it was, because I think the, the instinct to laugh or to just decide it's not real at all is, I don't know, small-minded, you know, and that what what was more fun for me through the years was just really leaning into what Bob said and trying to present it as fully as possible. So in case Kenny Rogers is amongst your listeners, please tell him <laughs> to contact me because I'd like to know whether he was in a psych hospital in the East Bay in the 1970s. <laughs> well, but then it, that, that makes it sound like you, and, and I would be too, by the way, you know, it's hard to not struggle with the question of what is veridical fact and what's not. Um, and maybe the, I wonder if at any point you grappled with the question, well, how much does it really matter whether it happened or not? Or is, is, is there always a true or false answer to questions like this? Yeah. And I think that that's keen. And I think that my book is moving us toward grayness, not toward black or white, you know? And um, I, I, I don't I don't think the, the point for me of this experience, the point hasn't been that I've come away knowing, for example, whether schizophrenia is a biological illness that will someday be understood genetically and will be, you know, best treated using chemicals or, or what have you, or if it's a meaningless category that has been strapped onto some people and we would actually do better to not even try to diagnose, quote, abnormality when it comes to psychiatric uh, disorder and, and, you know, and so on. You know, I don't, I don't at the end of the day, uh, I don't know who's right. You know, the same as I don't know whether my uncle met Kenny Rogers or didn't. And the same as I don't know whether he was kidnapped by aliens or not. Um, Because for me, it's, 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 it's easy to picture that either is right. And I think the real answer is that it's, you know, that some things are true to some people and they're true, you know, they're not true to others. And in the course of writing this book, I wanted to allow us to hold incompatible truths together, because I think that actually is where the reality is. The reality is you've got a family where some people are saying, yeah, this person is out of line, is sick, is suffering. You've got, you know, severe symptoms, you've got episodes, you've got, you know, what have you. And then how is that individual understanding what's going on? And where do they see themselves fitting into things? And how do they attribute what's going on? And do we right now, do we have a system that encourages an individual in that position who is being identified as, as, as needing help? Does our system allow that person to then retain his humanity as he tries to get help? You know, does it allow him to be heard without judgment? Um, or if he's honest about what's going on, is he going to be punished? Is it going to get harder for him? So he's going to be trained against letting on the ways in which he is quote different. One of the things that I open my reader up a little bit to in this book, but, um, I've got future work that will be about this. And I, I just hope in general, people will continue to learn about this. But one of the most exciting things I learned about in the course of reporting this story out was the hearing voices movement, um, which is a movement that's existed for about 30 years. It started in Europe. And it's a movement of people who identify as voice hearers, who say, I hear voices or who've seen visions or who've had other unusual or extreme experiences. And it's a, it's a peer support network where individuals who identify as you know voice hearers can sit amongst each other and can talk to each other openly without fear of repercussion, you know, repercussion or judgment about their experiences. Um, and they argue that it's this, it's a liberation effort, you know, toward, uh, I think in general, it's a question that our society is kind of always having to grapple with. We've got these differences between people, right? We've got, we've got a difference in, you know, height or in, you know, pigmentation. We've got a difference in whether someone hears one voice inside their head or 20. Um, and does that difference necessarily mean that one is better than the other or one is, one is sick and one is healthy, et cetera. 
And I, I, I think the Hearing Voices movement is an example, to my mind, of a way forward um, because it's a, it's, a, it's a group of people who have traditionally been withheld power, who are now seizing power and who are asserting often a different narrative for themselves, though there's definitely individuals who participate in Hearing Voices groups who agree that they have a, a psychiatric illness, who agree that they have bipolar, they have you know, schizophrenia, and who take... Uh, who 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 avail themselves of both ways, you know, who are in the psychiatric system and who are in a, a peer support group like the Hearing Voices Network. And I think it's it's mostly, to my mind, the important part here is how do we make sure that the individual himself is given an opportunity to avail himself of quality care when he needs it, but also like what does that care consist of? And um, is you know, if he's, I think in general, you know, is our society making sure that that kind of care is available to all. Because right now, and this is one of the things that I spend some time in the book looking at, there is such a dis, there's such a difference between what people of, of different incomes are allowed to access in terms of mental health care. Um, and things like talk therapy are, you know, inherently less accessed by those with less means. And, and that seems ridiculous because ultimately there's just so much that can clearly benefit a person from having that kind of relationship. And, and so those kinds of questions, you know, are, are what, are what stick with me as I, as I continue to, you know, I continue to learn myself, you know, I'm, 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 I haven't stopped reading about schizophrenia or interviewing people or continuing to kind of go out and, and, uh, and and try to learn from people who are really just wiser than I am about this stuff because my own, you know, this book represents my effort to this point, but I remain curious. I remain open, open-minded, I think. And the book came out this year. So yeah, in January, about three months ago. And so I'm wondering now, now that it's out and you're talking about it, what, what's it been like? What, how have you felt? What's been the reception, and and you talk a lot about what it's like to put together the book and to imagine it being out there, but what has it felt like to actually have it out there? It has been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it has been exhausting. Um, I did, I counted it, I did 23 live events in the last three months since it published. Wow. So I've been out on the road. I've been in front, of, in front of a lot of different kinds of rooms, bookstores and colleges. And I was at a med school and I was um, at like a, a peer support group and, and churches and bars and you, na- you name it. Like it's really been a variety of things. Um, connecting with people about this project is phenomenal for me because I spent eight years basically by myself. So all of a sudden, the fact that other people are able to appreciate this material and are able to connect with it and stuff is just, it, it remains surprising, honestly, when I'll get a text from a friend being like, I finished it, blah, blah, blah. And I'll be like, Oh my God, that's wow. You read that. I wrote that, you know, it's still <laughs> kind of unbelievable to me. Um, but yeah, it's been just this incredibly, um, honestly, like I've just been surprised that it seems like it's working, you know, that like people are engaging with this and they're coming out the other end of this book with their heads changed and they're responding to that. And I think that as a lover of literature, I'm, I'm thrilled if I've been able to give people that experience, you know, of reading a really good book that you start and you finish and you're like, wow, you know, here I am now. Um, because I love that feeling. And, and I love the idea that you know, Bob and I are able to give someone else that great literary experience. But also, I do think that, you know, one of the one of the things that's become a a part of my life is that I now know a lot of people's business, people come up to me and tell me their relationship to this topic, they tell me about themselves, or they tell me about their loved one, or they tell me about their job, and they just sometimes unload, you know, huge facts about themselves. And but well, because you've been it, so candid yourself. Yeah. And I think part of what that is, is that they're responding to something I've, I've started, you know, or right. Bob started really. And, and just speaking up about this kind of violating that um, tendency that we might have toward privacy or silence or shame or whatever it is, or just, I think in a lot of cases, an inability to know what to say, you know, like we haven't necessarily all been given a great vocabulary for talking about these things as, as a people. Um, and so I feel, I feel this incredible just um, energy coming back at me. Sometimes it's overwhelming, honestly, of, but people who have been really turned on in some sense by this book and who are like excited to then tell me what their relationship to this topic is or to tell others about it um, or to blog about it or to tweet about it or whatever, you know, there's just been this, this, this movement that um, I guess I shouldn't be shocked because 
the only continuum, the only uh, constant in this experience has been that Bob is right about stuff and I tend to be wrong. Like I mm-hmm. guessed it would never get published and he seemed confident that it would and, you know, those sorts of things. And I think he was, he was really sold on the power of his story. He knew that his story would, would be one that people would hear and respond to. And I think that, you know, whenever someone's been really affected by this book, by reading it, I'm like, on some level, I'm like, that's my uncle, that's him, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's me just getting out of the way enough that I think you're able to really touch the magic here, which is all Bob. Sandy, it's, it's an incredible book and an incredible story and, and an incredible labor of love on your part. Uh, we're almost out of time, but before we go, would you tell us what you're working on now? Yeah, I, as I mentioned, you know, I'm continuing to, um, to, to look into things that I think this book caused me to be interested in questions like what should mental health care be? You know, what are, what are the ways that we really could be helping not just Bob, but anybody if they're having this kind of crisis. And so I've been um, continuing to write about the hearing voices movement. And I have pieces coming out that are kind of in this spirit of, of what could the future of mental health care be? Um, but I will say, you know, whenever people ask me what I'm working on now, my honest answer is, what do you mean? Like this book still takes up all of my time yeah. and energy. So <laughs> for example, I will be in New York City doing two readings next month. So I'll be at the Franklin Park Reading Series in Brooklyn on May 14th. That's a Monday night. And that's an amazing lineup of readers that they have. And then a week later, I'll be reading again in Brooklyn at the Powerhouse Arena. And all information about the book and my live appearances and anything else, acomp.info, A Kind of Miraculous Paradise, A-K-O-M-P, acomp.info is the website that I built that has all that kind of stuff. So I'm mostly just continuing to get the story out there, which is what Bob wanted. Well, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your story. And I hope people will get the book and I hope people will come out and hear you talk. Uh, Good, good luck with that. And I hope that when you come out with the next book, you will come back on the show to talk about it. Yeah. Thank you so much. This one took me eight years, so I'll see you in 20. I figure (laughs) (laughs) I'll be around. That's great. All right. Take care, Sandy. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Eugenio Duarte, your host for New Books in Psychology in New York. I hope that you enjoyed the interview that you just listened to. And I also hope that you'll keep letting me know who you would like to hear on the show next or what books in psychology you're reading. To let me know, go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com and click on contact. Until next time, have a great week.